0: Tonight we're coming to the close of um, a little mini-series we've been looking at um, about putting on your spiritual armor. And if you um, have a church Bible, you want to turn to page 1,708. We're going to look at a little passage at the end of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so we've got this um, kind of extended metaphor of a series of different um, pieces of armor that the Christian is encouraged to put on. And really what he's describing here are kind of uh, resources for the Christian life, the way in which you, you navigate something of the, the battle of the Christian life. You might say, well, what, what is it about the Christian life that is a battle? Well, um, essentially, if you look through the New Testament, you get a picture of the battle being something on of of different fronts. First of all, we face the the battle inside ourselves. We face a battle with the flesh. Really what we're talking about there is desires that are contrary to God's purposes, which we all have. Um, A famous evangelist from the 19th century, a man called D.L. Moody, said, the man I have the biggest problem with is D.L. Moody. Uh, Basically what he's saying is, look, the the cause of most of my strife and trouble in my life is myself. And the desires I have, and I don't know if any of you can relate to that. So we face a battle with the flesh, we face a battle with the world. What it means is not that we go and take up arms against the world or some kind of militia or sect, but that we just we live in a world that is in some way opposed to um, the ways of Christ. that's marching to a different drumbeat, and so the Christian has to navigate that. And finally, and p- perhaps particularly in focus in this passage, uh, Paul is describing a battle against a spiritual enemy, against Satan. I, I won't go into lots of the, the background there, but essentially what he's talking about is there is one who is seeking to um, undermine and destroy your faith, to uh, destroy God's work in the world. So that's the context, and then he tells you to put on the armor, to put on these resources in Christ. And today we're going to be looking at the, the final piece of armor, uh, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So talking about the Bible, saying what does that have? Uh, what place does that have in our lives? I'm aware tonight there'll be some of you who, you know, you say, that's, that's a really important place in my life. Others of you say, well, that has no place in my life. And I want to think, well, what, what should it, what place should it have? So if you want to turn to page uh, 1,708, I'm just going to read to you from verse 10 to 17, uh, chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for this gift, uh, the word of God. We thank you that you have spoken into the world, that you are a God who, who speaks, who has revealed your reality to us. Would you help us to um, embrace this sword? Help us to take up this sword. Help us to understand what it means to have our lives um, mastered by your word. Um, Lord, I pray if there are those who tonight here who have no appetite for, <laughs> for this, who feel that this is completely irrelevant, would you help them to see something of your power and um, your, the power even of your word? Amen. Amen. So right as we begin, I want to deal with a couple of elephants in the room. As we talk about the Bible, as we talk about uh, shaping our lives around uh, the Word of God, around taking up this sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So it means basically the the Word of God, which comes from uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm aware that there'll be many in the room who feel probably unenthusiastic about that. And you can see that either by, you, you, you literally would say, I'm not, I'm not particularly enthusiastic about the Bible. It has no place in my life. Or you can tell that you're unenthusiastic because it doesn't really play a significant role in your life. It doesn't inform or shape how you live. So if, that, if that's where you're at, I want to suggest there are probably two main reasons for that lack of enthusiasm. The first is a skepticism. There'll be some of you who aren't Christians here who just say, "Um, really, how on earth can you stand here in 2019 and suggest that the Bible should have a significant place in my life? Maybe you say, can't you see how uh, deeply contradictory the Bible is to the, the kind of values that we hold dear in our culture? So you say it doesn't really feel relevant to the 21st century. You say, how could someone, how could a book written 2,000 years ago and beyond and before that um, have anything to say to modern culture? So there's a whole question of relevance. There's also a question of reliability. You'll say, well, how can you be so uh, confident that this is the word of God, that God has inspired these words? Or put it this way, maybe even not even that, but just how can you even be sure that this is reliable, that this is true in the claims that it makes? And so I think some of you will be asking those questions, and it's important we answer those questions. I want to show you tonight that this really is the word of God, and that God has spoken through a series of human authors writing over uh, hundreds of years apart, different authors, different times, different places, but together, those different authors, behind those authors, should I say, there is one author. So then I want to talk to the second um, elephant in the room, or the, the driver behind a lack of appetite. And I think it's, it's really simple that Christians are often bored by their Bibles. What I mean by that is that uh, yesterday, uh, someone who became a Christian recently got in touch with Jen, my wife, um, and just saying she was really enjoying reading her Bible. She's become a Christian quite recently, and she's um, uh, enjoy, like, enjoying reading it and finding it deeply relevant to her life. And as, I, as we were talking about that message, we were thinking, actually, that's probably a lot of people wouldn't share her sentiment. A lot of people wouldn't be able to relate to how she's feeling. I think often um, I speak to people, and I get a sense that it create, um, the Bible is kind of something of a, of a source of apathy or boredom. It doesn't feel exciting or attractive. Uh, re, maybe reading the Bible for you is like going to the dentist or doing your chores. It's something that maybe you feel like you need to do, but you don't feel a particular enthusiasm to do so. Or maybe it just doesn't feel very life-changing. You might think, well, they can have life-changing experiences. You can have life-changing relationships, people who can have a significant influence in your life. But the idea of a book being life-changing feels uh, somewhat jarring. Even if you do think a book can be significant, you might say, well, why this book? And how can you be so confident that this book alone has such significance? I think also for many Christians, they've detached the Bible from Jesus. What I mean by that is you're often excited about what Jesus is doing in your life, maybe excited about how the Spirit is at work and how he's speaking to you. Different uh, things cause you excitement. But when it comes to the Bible, that, that enthusiasm doesn't kind of map on to enthusiasm for the Bible. Actually, when you come to the Bible, it feels lifeless and irrelevant to your life. So that's some of the challenge. But what's interesting is as behind this encouragement to take up your sword, and you'll see this as you look through the rest of Paul's writings, is a very different attitude. Paul's saying that, that this sword, this, the Bible, is essential for your life. You can see it from this passage, actually. He starts off, the first piece of armour is this belt of truth. It sits underneath all the rest of the armour. And really, the, the rest of the armor kind of hangs on to this belt. It's more like a kind of leather girdle. And what he's really saying is that the truth is foundational. Actually, that all the other pieces of armor, that breastplate of righteousness, that, that wonderful knowledge that we as Christians have, that we have been made righteous, that we were praying about and thanking God for, you'll only know that if you believe in the Word of God, if you trust that, that what he says is true. So it's foundational. But also, see this picture, he's also saying it's like a sword. Bear in mind, it's the only offensive weapon in the armory that Paul is giving us. Think about the idea of going into battle without your offensive weapon. You know, you've got all your armor, that's great, but you can do no damage to the enemy. Essentially, what he's saying is that you will be impotent, that you might be able to survive, but that your Christian life will lack power if you remove this from your life. So I think he's saying it's essential, and behind that he's saying actually it's powerful. It's powerful for your own life. It has a potential to shape you, and we're going to look at that this evening. But it's also powerful for the spiritual battle. It's essential for that battle that we all are part of. So I want to show you three things tonight. One, that the Bible is God's word, that God has spoken, that has profound personal implications for us, and it has power for the battle. So first of all, let's start with the question of reality. And please move on to my first point. God has spoken. God has spoken. We need to establish is the Bible God's word? Is this God's means of revealing himself to the world? Or is it just a fabrication? Why do we need to look at this? Well, I mentioned skeptics, but I also think Christians need to look at this. Actually, I know I speak to a number of Christians where I get a sense that there's a kind of nagging fear in your mind that um, the Bible isn't really God's word, isn't really uh, his truth and revelation to us. And I would argue that if, if you have those concerns, those niggling doubts at the back of your mind, they will undermine your faith. I'd go so far to say this is like the. Imagine you're building a kind of tower of cards, and you take the uh, card in the middle away, and the whole tower comes crashing down. That's a little bit like this. This conviction that the Bible is the Word of God, that it has authority to speak into your life, authority to be obeyed, is like the card at the center of the tower, and take it away, and your faith will collapse. Some of you, I think, are in a kind of middle ground where it's not that you reject the Bible um, wholeheartedly at all, but you're not sure of some of the claims that it makes it's almost like you might look through it and say yeah i like this but this this doesn't feel like god speaking or you know i i I embrace this but uh these parts i find difficult and and as a result i don't recognize them as god's word and you hear this uh, i may have come across the term red letter christians sometimes that's that's people saying i want to obey the words of jesus but the rest of the bible i want to leave aside and that's i would argue very dangerous not least because the problem is when you're the judge of what's true, of what which bits to accept and which bits not, actually you don't have an authoritative Bible anymore. What you have is a text that you've constructed for yourself that is essentially... Um What's it, liable to your prejudices and your biases? You've essentially constructed a document for yourself, a bit like Thomas Jefferson, who cut out uh, all the supernatural parts of the, the Bible and just left himself with the ethics and said, yep, I really believe in the Bible. But of course, he took taken out uh, really any, everything of substance in it. So you can't uh, take this part, take the kind of just parts of it. But also I think this is true, important for the church. I think the church stands and falls on this question of whether the Bible is authoritative. When a church loses confidence in the Bible, when it has no message for the world, essentially the church becomes a kind of social club where everyone's just trying to be nice to each other and, to be honest, probably failing at that. In fact, I would go as far as to say, you know, like when you're fighting a battle? I know many of you have experience of fighting battles, um, but you live, stay with me. Um... If you're fighting a battle, sometimes there's a a point in the enemy's line. You say, that is the most strategic point. And if we take that point out, then the enemy will be defeated. And I think this is like that for the Christian faith. That actually, take this out. If if you um, manage to convince the church to uh, lose its confidence in the Bible, then the church will collapse. And I've seen that, actually, in large parts of the Western world over the last hundred years. Um, and by the way, this is something that's been for all eternity, uh, for, for many hundreds and thousands of years. Think about um, in the Garden of Eden, when uh, Satan, through the snake, says to Eve, did God really say, right from the beginning of time, or right from the beginning of humanity, uh, Satan has been undermining this confidence in, in God's word. So we have to look at this question. How do, we, how do we answer this then? How do we know whether the Bible is reliable It's the word of God? Well, I think many of you would say... Um, If only I was there in person, if only I uh, was a witness to the events of the Bible, then I would believe it. But I can't believe you're asking me to believe this kind of second hand. First of all, it's pretty impossible that you would have been around for all the events of the Bible because it spans hundreds of years. So it's not like you could have seen all the events. But leaving that aside, I want to suggest to you actually the opposite is true. Actually, that you stand today in a better vantage point of being able to see whether or not the whole Bible is indeed the word of God. Uh, after its completion and this is what uh peter says now peter was one of the eyewitnesses of jesus's life he was one of his early his disciples um and and he taught in one of his letters in the new testament uh he describes being an eyewitness he said for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made to you made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty so we followed him around we were eyewitnesses we saw him And for when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Peter is saying, and you can go back and look at this in the Gospels, he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the voice of God saying over Jesus, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He saw it with his own eyes. He said, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You think. What? Amazing thing. Like you had front row seats. It's unparalleled. But then he says something completely opposite to what you'd expect. He says, and we have something more sure. We have something more sure. The prophetic word, he's talking about the Bible, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place. Peter is saying that you who have this prophetic word, have something more sure than if you'd been there at, the, at seeing Jesus being spoken to on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why is Peter saying this? I think it's really that actually, in the vantage point of history, having seen kind of the the events of the biblical narrative uh, take place over thousands, hundreds and thousands of years, you can see the way that through many different authors and many different events, God has weaved his work through those authors. What I mean by this is, you'll see, and some of you are very familiar with this, others are not familiar at all, but the... um, the way that some of the events of the Bible are prophesied. So so different authors writing hundreds of years before other authors and other events will write with incredible clarity about events that go on, such that if you kind of zoom back, you'll see one hand behind the events of the Bible. So uh, in Abraham and Isaac, in the story of Genesis, he takes Isaac to the top of the mountain and he sacrifices a a lamb on behalf of Isaac. A lamb of God is sacrificed on Isaac's behalf. Hundreds of and of, of years later, um, uh, um, Jesus Christ, describing himself as the Lamb of God, is sacrificed on that same mountain, on Mount Moriah, which is, becomes Jerusalem, in the same place he is sacrificed. And yet that event was, was foreshadowed and prophesied hundreds of years beforehand by Abraham and Isaac. Or well, think about Moses, who was in the wilderness for 40 years before he was called to take his people out of slavery. Of course, you see the same uh, mirror, kind of see a a similar pattern that Jesus was in the the wilderness for 40 days before he was then called to lead his people out of slavery by his death on the cross. Think about David, king of Israel, who probably had no idea about the resurrection, but wrote about a future king who was coming hundreds of years after him who would live forever. He didn't know that Jesus would die and then three days later be resurrected and live forever forever. Or Isaiah, the prophet, writing 700 years before Jesus' uh, death, describes a suffering servant who will be pierced for our transgressions. He probably had no idea. I don't even know if a crucifixion existed when Isaiah wrote those words. But he was describing the way that Jesus would be crucified as he, his hands were pierced on the cross. And of course, You start to look. It even describes the fact that Jesus will be buried in a rich man's grave. He was not to know that Joseph Arimathea, uh, against the odds, a a rich man on the ruling council, was going to ask to bury Jesus in his family tomb. He's a rich man. He has a family tomb. The level of detail and precision that the Bible predicts events which happen then in the Bible later on, even though they had no idea, is incredible. And really, what it speaks of is the fact that you've got all these different people writing but behind them one author one spirit who knows the events from the beginning to end it's a little bit like an orchestra it's different instruments different people writing these words different uh, instruments but behind them is one they are they are singing one song and there is one author behind it all the holy spirit inspiring and leading these um men to write these accounts so that's the first point. The second thing is I would say, ultimately, the whether or not you recognize the authority of the Bible hangs and falls on what you make of the person of Christ. So you have to look at how Jesus treats the Bible. And Jesus is unequivocal that the Bible is, has um, tremendous authority and is the word of God. When he's arguing with the religious teachers, his constant refrain is, it is written. His basis for arguing something says, well, look what the scriptures say. Sorry. This is, um, this, is, this is his authority. This is the basis by which he seeks to persuade his hearers. You see this in John's gospel. He's been teaching them, saying different things, kind of radical revolutionary things like, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the bread of life. Um, Before Abraham was, I am. And, the, and the, the, the people who are following him are kind of uh, getting a bit impatient. They kind of say, what on earth are you saying? What kind of radical things are you claiming about yourself? And he says, it goes on, he says, I and the Father are one. And at this point, they're outraged. They're saying, you are basically claiming blasphemy. You're saying you're equal with God. You and the Father are one. And they're about to stone him. But this is Jesus' response to them. He says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? He's quoting a passage, which essentially he's, he's showing them that um, the Old Testament sometimes uses the words gods with a lowercase g to describe kings. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, he's talking about himself, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God. What he's saying is, have you read your Bible? Have you realized that these are the words that that, uh, he uses to describe kings? Why do you have such a a problem with me describing myself as the son of God? But did you notice, he said, and scripture cannot be broken. Jesus' view of scripture is unbreakable. He didn't come to um, abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law with his own life. It's authoritative. It, It is to be obeyed. But he doesn't just think it has authority. He thinks it's the very voice of God. In Matthew's gospel, he's asked about divorce. And he takes them back to the words in Genesis. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You may have missed it, but but what he's saying is the same person who made these people is also the one who said these things. He's saying that these words you read in Genesis aren't just the words of the human author who wrote them. They are God's words, that God has inspired the author, that the Holy Spirit is at work through that author, and such that you can say, these are God's words. That is the authority and reverence that Jesus has for the Bible. So if, if The question, if you're trying to answer the question, is the Bible God's word, you instead need to answer the question, is Jesus who he said he is? Because if Jesus is who he said he is, if he is God in the flesh, then you must accept what he says about the Bible, that it is the word of God. And I think there's substantial evidence you can. I'm I'm not going to go into it um, in great detail, but just a couple of things. The gospel accounts, the accounts that describe Jesus' life have the authentic ring of eyewitness testimony such that you can trust them when they describe the events of Jesus' life and uh, and as such they point to the fact that he is God in the flesh. You know one one example of this is the way that the gospel accounts uh, use uh, the testimony of two women to describe uh, Jesus' resurrection they're the first witnesses to jesus's resurrection now what's fascinating is if you were making up an account of jesus's life you wouldn't make two women the witnesses because at the time such were the attitudes of the day that they they were not respectful of the testimony of women women couldn't give testimony in a court of law so why would the disciples if you were making a fabricated account use the testimony of women There's all sorts of what we might call inconvenient truths that do not fit with what you'd expect with a fabricated account, such that the only conclusion you can come to is that these are describing reality, real events. The final thing it hangs and falls on is the resurrection. The disciples uh, claim that they have seen Jesus resurrected, and they're willing to give their lives to this fact. Many of them died for the fact that they believed that Jesus was resurrected. Now, it's my contention to you that no one would die for something they know not to be true. If you know something's not true, you wouldn't give your life for it. You wouldn't die to hold on to, uh, for that, to that claim. If you really believe it not to be true, if you know it not to be true, should I say. So the very fact that they were willing to die for it means they, they believed wholeheartedly that it happened. The resurrection occurred. So the only thing you have to ask is how how was... Jesus is able to convince so many, over, it says hundreds in the accounts, uh, who saw his resurrected body. Is it a mass hallucination? Well, psychologists will tell you that's ridiculous. The, it comes back to the most compelling uh, conclusion, the one that fits the facts the best, is that Jesus was actually resurrected. And if he was resurrected, three days later after dying, he was resurrected, then he is God in the flesh. And if he's God in the flesh, he's no mere man, then he can be trusted that this is God's word. And if this is God's word... then then this, I think, has big implications for how we look at the Bible. It settles the cultural question. Those of you who say, well, I don't understand how the Bible can make these claims and speak uh, things into our culture. Well, you ought to understand is that the Bible, if it's God's word, and that's something of a truism, let's understand what we're talking about here is literally the words of God. If it's the words of God, then what you've got to understand is it stands above culture. Some one writer put it as, these are words from another world. This is not the the teaching of uh, religious teachers and philosophers from 2,000 years ago that we're just kind of superimposing onto 21st century London. That would be ridiculous. These are the words of God spoken into a specific culture. But to be honest, it's not really that important which culture they're spoken into. What's important is that these are the very words of God that speak to all cultures and all time. And what you realize is that actually the Bible will offend almost every culture in different ways. So you know, in one culture, you're going to find sexual ethics really uh, difficult. So I can't understand how Jesus would make these claims and make these um, ethical stances. On others, you're going to, uh, in some cultures, the idea that Jesus would call you to forgive your enemies is incredible, ridiculous. How could he call you to forgive those who who persecute you? For other people, it might be um, family obedience. Jesus calls you to follow him above all, uh, above your family, to put him above every other human relationship. And for some, where family is the most important thing, that's a hugely radical claim. So the Bible will offend, will challenge you. In fact, if you're reading your Bible properly, you should be offended and challenged. If you're not, if you're never challenged or offended, then actually you're not really reading it properly. One writer put it like this. Now, what happened if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you have a God who can contradict you? You won't have... Uh, you won't. You'll have what he calls a Stepford God. It refers to Stepford Wives. It's a film where some men can turn their wives into robots. Effectively, you won't have a real uh, living God. A God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It's a precondition for it. And I I would go further and say, you will only see the, the, the reality that this is God's word. You'll only see the power of God's word when you start to apply it to your own life. That brings me on to my second point. The sword is personal. God is speaking to each of you. God is speaking to each of you. See what you want. What you want to understand is that in this picture of uh, the Bible as a sword, is it's like a, a, the knife of a surgeon cutting in and uh, cutting out the sickness that we experience. Or another way of putting it, it's like the, the shears of a gardener as he uh, sees a, a bush with dead dead branches and seeks to prune off those dead branches and cut off to, in order to enable that plant to grow. Um, you can see I'm a gardener. <laughs> I'm not, by the way. Just isn't not clear. My lack of expertise. Um, let me give you the verse that really explains this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of bones and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Saying this sword is to be applied personally and individually. And this is God's primary way of shaping our lives. Let me just show you what, how he does that. First of all, he does it in diagnosing our hearts. What he means by that is dis, um, it has a kind of diagnostic power. It shows you what you're really thinking, what's going on in your heart, what you really desire. In a sense, he's saying he, the Bible knows you better than you know yourself. And I think this is important because there's something of a human te- tendency to self-deception. You know, think about this. Often you'll have been in a workplace or a, a group of friends where everyone can see that somebody has a flaw, has a kind of problem, but they can't see it themselves. And it just kind of becomes awkward, and you're not really sure how to do it, how to deal with it. At university, uh, there was a guy I knew at university who, who had a problem with BO. Like, he was a little bit smelly. And, um, and, and, and you know, if you'd spent five minutes with him, you knew that. But, but he didn't know it. I mean, if he knew it, he would have put some deodorant on, right? Like, so, there were, like, it was kind of like a, I mean, literally like a bad smell that kind of followed him around, and sometimes our character flaws are like that, that, that in a sense that, that everyone else can kind of smell it and can kind of see the character flaw, but you're kind of oblivious to it. I don't know if maybe you think, maybe you kind of justify it in your head, like everyone else thinks you're aggressive, but you just think you're just passionate or, or something like that. I think it speaks probably to our tendency to hypocrisy. In a sense, what we mean is we, we look at the flaws of other people and we, and we can kind of see uh, very clearly what's going wrong in their lives. But when we, when we have the same tendencies ourselves, we tend to kind of uh, ignore it or kind of justify, oh, I was just tired having a bad day, a bit grumpy, whatever. But, but we don't really apply the same filter to other people. Most, most of us probably have a higher view of ourselves than as, reali- than as reality. And so what we're saying is that we need God's word to diagnose our hearts, to show us what's really going on, to humble us. Actually, when you understand this, when you can see your flaws in life, when you can see the problem, actually you've got half the battle to solving it. That's, that's usually what we need. I think this happens in a couple of ways. One, you can see it specifically. Sometimes you're reading through a passage and then there are words in that passage that will just pierce you to the heart. That You just feel like, oh, you've got me. You're describing me in perfect detail. I had this recently when I was or somewhere, I came across uh, Luke chapter 10. It's talking about uh, a man who asks uh, Jesus, uh, who is my neighbor? But it starts the sentence with, he desiring to justify himself. And as I heard those words, I just thought, that is so true of me. As I go around life trying to basically, not exclusively, but... Um, Basically trying to justify myself. What it means is is wanting other people to think well of me, uh, you know, it kind of means that I'm trying to win an argument or trying to, uh, you know, don't want people to see my flaws. Or I just want people to think I'm great, basically. And maybe some of you um, can relate to that. But there's, there's a sense in which I read those words. And as I chewed them over and as I was walking around my life, I could just see it in so many different parts of my life. So the way the word will sometimes just speak very clearly and specifically. Now, what really what we're dealing with here is the fact that the word is living and active. You're not just kind of taking a rule book and applying it and saying, oh, page 42, that rule there, that's, that's my life. No, actually, this is a living document. The spirit is, is inspired in it and is speaking it to your heart. And so sometimes you should expect to be challenged to God to speak to you through his word. And of course, that means, by the way, that, that reading your Bible is an encounter with the living God. Some of you will long for to encounter the Spirit of God. And that's absolutely right. And we long to grow in That's why we do Upper Room and why we long to see the gifts of the Spirit poured out amongst us. But don't forget that literally reading your Bible is an encounter with the living God, that he is speaking and at work through his word. Every day you can meet with the living God. So he speaks specifically, but he also speaks generally. What I mean by that is there's the biblical anthropology, the understanding of humanity and how we work. Um, it means the Bible understands us. Of course, I understand this because it's written by the one who knows us, who made us. We may differ over ethics and culture, technology and habits, but actually all the way through history, almost what it's saying is there are kind of universal characteristics of humanity. I mean, um, I kind of, it's a bit, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but you say we're not quite the unique snowflakes that we want to be. Actually, in a sense, there are kind of commonalities and themes that are true about all of human, humanity. That we all desire to... Um, there's some resistance in us to worshipping God, each of us. Or we all desire in some way to justify ourselves. Maybe the way we want to be thought righteous, want to be considered right in the eyes of others might have changed. In Victorian England, it might have been about being polite and well-mannered and being invited to certain social occasions. Now it might be about whether you respect uh, the kind of justice issues and um, whether you think about what you're eating, all sorts of different things that, that are markers of what it means to be a good human being. They will change, but inside each of us wants to be thought well of, wants to be righteous. So what it's saying is that there are principles about the humanity which stay the same, and the Bible understands us. But it's, it's really, there's a kind of good news here, because whilst we're challenged, that challenge will never crush us. This is a diagnosis that all of us can receive. We live in a black and white world where uh, when we see evil, when we see things that are wrong, there's a tendency to kind of um, want to ostracize those people completely from society. You know, there's public shaming on Twitter when someone says something that, that people disagree with. But that's not the same as what's going on here. Actually, the, the diagnosis that God is giving you as you read his word is a diagnosis to heal you. It's a diagnosis for your own good. What I don't want you to do is, is di- di- disentangle God's rebuke from his love. Actually, you've got to hear that when he challenges, when he opens your life up to you and reveals something, what's going on in your heart to you, actually, he's doing that because he's a loving father. I think if, you're in, if you really love someone, you want to help them. If you've got a friendship and you've got a friend who's really making a mess of things, you, if you're a good friend, you're going to challenge them. You're going to help them. I'm a father. If I see my son doing something that I think later on in life that's probably going to be a problem, as he's, he's one years old and he likes hitting people, it's my responsibility to, to teach him. Because, I mean, I don't want him to get to the age of 20 and still be hitting people. That would not be helpful for him. So my point is that there's a sense to which if you really love someone, you're going to help them. You're going to discipline them. You're going to challenge them. And that's what the Father's doing when he diagnoses what's going on in your heart, when he challenges you. The difference is that that diagnosis is restorative. Either to challenge you, if you're not a Christian, to show you that you need a saviour, that you need one to be in control of your life who's not yourself. Or to show you, if you're a Christian, where you need to be pruned, where something needs to be cut off. I remember this, uh, this was actually really good news for me. I, when I became a Christian, I was really struggling with... I could just see so much sin in my life, so many different ways. I was proud, and you're getting a kind of consistent picture. Uh, it, hasn't, <laughs> it has not changed, but anyway, another, that's my story another, another time. But my point is this, I was kind of feeling really uh, down. I was seeing a lot of sin in my life, and I went to my friend and just said, I don't know what's going on. I can't believe I see all of this. And he just reminded me of this verse in Jeremiah. It says, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And I remember, you might think, that's kind of an offensive thing to say to someone. You might think I would have been offended, but actually I was deeply relieved. It was like he was saying, look, your, your heart is evil, but God knows that. He loves you. He hasn't turned his face away from you. And I felt almost like, oh, phew, relief. You know me, and yet you still love me. So there's a challenging element, but there's also a kind of cutting element here. The word doesn't just give you a picture of your sin. It prunes you it seeks to 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 break off those part of your life that do not give glory to god we need this once for one reason because of the kind of way that sin is like a weed in the garden that will kind of grow and if you don't keep it in check if you don't uh do some weeding don't do some pruning to your bush if you follow the uh, multiple gardening analogies um then you'll allow those weeds to kind of dominate the garden to take over if you fail to cut it out, it will spread. I see this in the way um, temptation. You know, you might be drawn towards something, and you might just give it one look. And then you kind of give it another look, and then you, and then you take part in it, and you do it. And then you, and then you think, okay, I need to get away from this. But then you go back to it, and you go back to it. And you started by thinking, I'll just do this a little bit. But eventually, it kind of pulls you in, and it ends up controlling you. I've seen this in bitterness, in anger and bitterness. You might just be a bit annoyed with God, a bit frustrated. And you start to dwell on it and start to chew over um, the things that God has done against you. And then eventually that bitterness, that anger and frustration turns to bitterness, turns to hard-heartedness. And I've even seen people then literally just walk away from God. We started off as just a bit of frustration. It ends up with you just walking away from God. You've got to be willing, got to be rigorous to cut this sin out immediately Think about the, um, the way Jesus talks about if you see sin uh, in your hand. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's not like a kind of uh, toothache that you might need to get fit, sorted out in a few weeks. This is something that you've got to be rigorous about. It's like, like gangrene. If you don't cut off your hand, your whole body will be diseased and will die. So it's not enough to be challenged by the word. It's not enough just to let it diagnose your life. You have to allow it to start cutting things off. It must lead you to action. When you're reading the Bible, you need to be asking, what is this asking of me? What is this causing, calling me to change? I think it's such a helpful thing if you just approach it with that humility where you say, God, what do you want to change about me as I read this? What do you want to do in my life? It can't be read as just a kind of theological text or an intellectual exercise. Of course, when God calls you to cut things off, it sometimes may be incredibly painful. It may mean that that thing that you count very preciously is is something that offends him and offends his word. It may be painful, but you've got to remember that he is that loving father seeking to discipline you, that surgeon seeking to cut it up. My, my, I used to have. Um Splinters. My dad would um, take, would get the tweezers out, and he would get the uh, get the splinter out. But he was not very good at it, I don't think. Um, and he uh, he was really painful. But what you kept, what kept you going at the mo- in the moment was the idea that this splinter needs to be out. If you don't get the splinter out, it's just going to stay in there, and it's going to go deeper. There are going to be times where it's going to feel really painful, but it's absolutely worth it because you have a good father who loves you. I'd go even further and say it's not enough just to be challenged or even changed by this, actually he wants you to be mastered by the word. The sword must go deep. In Hebrews, it talks about that sword uh, dividing bone and marrow. So the boat going really deep into the bone or, or dividing soul and spirit, the innermost being. must go all the way in. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, these are not just idle words for you. They are your life. He's saying this word must Soak into you like the way a sponge is uh, kind of drenched in water, and the water goes all the way through the sponge. This must permeate into you in every part of your life. You must be mastered by this. Think about when someone says that's their life. When someone says, you know, if you meet someone, say, "Oh, you know, Manchester United, that's their life. That's his life." What they're saying is he's obsessed by them. He loves them. They captivate his attention. That's the, in many ways, they provide something of a narrative to his life, the ultimate uh, reason for being, his raison d'etre. And that's what he's saying here, is that this, this word, that you must inhabit the story of the word of God, that it becomes your story. The central narrative of your life, if you're a Christian, is the spiritual story that, God has, that, that you are included in. That you've been born again, that you've been brought out of slavery to sin, and you're going to spend eternity with God. That God has planned good works for you now, and that he has um, adopted you as his son and daughter, put you in a new family. This is the controlling narrative of your life if you're a Christian. It's not some side thing. It's not just a relationship. It's not just some kind of rules to apply to your life. This is your story. And I think the stories that we tell ourselves define how we live. When I was growing up, my parents said... um, to my brother, they said to me, I was young, I have an older brother, and they said, he's the intelligent one and you're the hardworking one. And you can decide whether or not the trauma, the trauma how to deal with the trauma later. But the, what was really interesting is that just started to shape how I lived. Every time I came across a challenge in life, I thought, I'm the hardworking one, and I just powered through it. And hard work became my mantra in life. In many ways, it became a defining feature of who I was. Because that was the story that I'd been told about myself. The stories that we tell ourselves define how we live. What he's saying is this is the defining narrative of your life. This is the shaping picture of who you are. If you know that you're a servant of Christ, you'll find it much easier to serve. If you know that you are a brother of Christ and that you've been given a new family, you'll find it much easier to love people in church because they're not that annoying ex over there. They're your brother and your sister because you know who you are because this is the narrative of your life. And the Bible is the way into this narrative. It's the reminder of this unseen reality. The problem is that you, we live in um, a world where everyone else is marching to a different reality. And this is an unseen reality. So when you're going about your life, it's not immediately obvious. I think the analogy is kind of like if you've seen The Matrix. You know They are pulled out of one reality. If you haven't seen it, then go and see it. But, uh, go, and take, go and get the DVD. But, but uh, I'm not going to explain it now. But they're pulled out of one reality... And, and they, can't, they see the reality of what the universe is about, what life's about. But they, then they re-enter the matrix. Effectively, that's the same for you. You've been, you've been kind of taken out of one reality, been shown the full picture of what reality is, and now you need to go back and live in that other reality again. So you need to go and be reading the Bible and engaging with the word of God because that's your way in to the ultimate unseen reality of life. It's the way, it's the way of kind of reminding yourself of the reality that you live in, the true reality. This uh, reality should shape us. It means that when you lose your job, uh, you, know, you remember that you're a Christian who is, I don't know, say you're a banker. You say, I'm a Christian who's a banker, not a banker who's a Christian. It means, that I, it means if I lose my job, it's not the central thing of my life or it isn't, it's, not, it's not gonna destroy me because I have a bigger narrative. So in order to be challenged, to be changed and to be mastered by this, of course, the answer is we need to be exposed to this. The answer of this is got to be exposing yourself to God's word. Now, I want to be quite inspecific when I say that. i would say you've got to figure out what your daily rhythms are, how you do this. I don't want to say go and read your Bible for 10 minutes every day because then you're just going to kind of try to do that, maybe fail, and then just kind of give up or, or just feel like I've ticked my box. And that's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying here. I'm saying that the answer is as much as you can expose yourself to this reality. Remind yourself of this reality. I would encourage you to do it every day. Uh, John Newton, the famous slave trader who um, uh, then wrote Amazing Grace, uh, talked about his soul being like a dungeon and saying every day he needs the light of Christ to, to shine into that dungeon to bring light, to bring heat, to bring uh, happiness into his, into his world. It's not enough that there was light there yesterday. You need that light every day. And then finally then, so God is speaking into the battle. He's changing us with the sword, but that sword is also for the spiritual battle that we face. It's the essential sword for the fight. Consider that battle. Remember here that we're talking about Satan who is a liar, who throws temptation at you. That means he tries to draw you away from God. He's he's deceiving you because he's saying, this thing that God is calling you to, it's too hard or it doesn't bring you happiness and actually you'd be better off doing something else. He's lying to you about sin. Or he does accusation. He's lying to you about who you are. And instead of knowing, reminding you that you're a Christian and that you're loved by God, he's saying, call yourself a Christian. I know what you did last week. There's no way that you can call yourself a Christian. And he's undermining your identity and trying to cause you really just to feel like a, in a puddle of self-pity and just kind of give up. That's what Satan's trying to do, his deception, either to obscure the reality of sin or to obscure the reality of God's love. So if you think if Satan is a liar, well, what's the answer to lies? It's truth. It's reality. The ultimate antidote to uh, God's—sorry, not sorry—Satan's attempts to lie and deceive you is the reality of God's word. There's one place, one truth to run to. We live in a culture, a post-truth world, where we don't really know what's true, what's not. Who can we trust? This is saying that you have one answer to that question, one ultimate place where you can trust and you can run to. It means when you are feeling deeply accused and feeling like you just want to give up and feeling that you know God is like an angry father who doesn't really love you, there's one place to go and that's the word of God because you can see the true picture of what God's like, however you feel. Or if you're feeling like this temptation is too much and I'm just going to give in because it just feels so good and I can't deny it anymore and I just need to accept that, that temptation, no, you can remind yourself right now that God can be trusted that his love is better than life and his ways are better than, it, than, than the world's ways, than the, and the way of sin. You remind yourself of that truth in the midst of that temptation, in the midst of that um, accusation. You see this in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4. He is confronted by Satan as he's in the wilderness. And what's his answer to Satan's temptations? It's God's word. God, uh, you know, Satan seeks to tell him to turn the stones into bread. What he's saying basically is... Why do you take control of yourself? Sort yourself out. The Father does, is not caring for you. Go and turn these stones into bread. You're, if you're God's son, you can do this. Jesus' answer to him said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying in one sense that God has a bigger purpose than, than just to feed me, but he's also speaking to Satan and, and reminding himself, actually, and I'm sure, and, and speaking to Satan, of God's provision, that verse is a drawn from a, a chapter in Deuteronomy that is really all about God's promises, about his provision for the people of Israel in the desert. So when Satan comes to him and says, you should sort yourself out. The father's not looking, after, looking out for you. Jesus is basically saying, no, my father can be trusted. He's provided for the people of Israel. He'll provide for me. Some of you want to take your matters into your own hand and want to try and manage your own life in this way. And Jesus is saying, reminding you of the reality that a father can be trusted. But you've got to also see that Jesus has the truth at his fingertips here. It's not that he is, you know, he's he's tired. He's been maybe days of not eating. He's at the very end of himself. But when Satan comes with his lies, Jesus has got the truth right there to respond to him. And you've got to be, what I'm trying to argue here is that you've got to not just be mastered by the word, but you've got to master the word. You've got to read it and understand it and study it such that when Satan is seeking to deceive you, when people are seeking to twist the truth, to draw you away from God, you have the ultimate antidote. You know the next temptation. Satan uh, literally uses Scripture to try and uh, lead Jesus into sin and, and probably death. He takes Jesus to the top of a tower and then basically says to him, "Jump off, your father will save you." Right? And uh, and Jesus, he's using Scripture. He's quoting Scripture. It's not "Jump off, your father will save you," but you have to go back and read it yourself. But the um, he's using Scripture to try and lead Jesus into sin. But Jesus is wise. To Satan's temptations, and he and he says, "No, the father's not to be. Te- uh, father's not to um, be tested." Exactly. Thank you. Q and A. Q&A. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Jesus fights back with the truth, and this is really important because much of the false teaching that we might encounter, much of the deceptions, are very close to the truth. You might have heard of the prosperity gospel. Basically, um, do good things, live rightly, and God will provide for you. That's a but, uh, a kind of twisting of, 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 of scriptural truth. It's very close to the truth. God is the provider. He loves you. He blesses his children. He said, don't worry about your food and clothing because your father knows what you need. But it's a twisting because you can't twist God's arm to make you uh, have financial possessions. And you shouldn't be chasing that as the ultimate reality. Life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. It's a, tr- it's a subtle twisting of the truth. And when you've really mastered God's word and when you've studied it and when you've immersed yourself in the truth and reality of scripture, then you're able to tell truth from lies. You're able to be able to test this, uh, what people are saying. One John, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Saying the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. So you've been able to see his lies, his schemes and see them for what they are because the word of God lives in you. That's what we need, people. We need to be people who the Word of God lives in us. So, just a few bits of get a study Bible, get some, read some basic commentaries. Um, Straight to the heart is one series. God's uh, God's word for you. I'll I'll maybe put it in an email some, uh, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere uh, for you. Uh, but yeah, basically immerse yourself in studying Scripture. But the final thing I want to say is that the truth is essential for the spiritual battle. And I'm not talking about the personal one. I'm talking about the big macro spiritual battle. That This sword is not just to be used in your own life, but actually it's by deploying the word of God that Satan is pushed back, that the forces of darkness are pushed back, people's lives are changed. So I want to take you back to Reformation, England, where the Catholic Church had prevented the Bible being in the languages of the people who, uh, of the people. No one could read the Bible for themselves. Very few people could read it. And what happened is that some uh, people whose lives were so transformed by the Bible themselves, they saw the power in this in this sword that they gave their lives for the translation of Scripture into their own languages. A man called William Tyndale uh, read the New Testament in Greek. was so astounded by what he was reading that he said, "I must get this in the hands of every person in Britain." He said his dream was, his life's ambition was, so that the ploughboy, the ordinary man and woman, might be able to read Scripture. He gave his life for that. He was burnt at the stake in 1536 because he wanted that, that dream to be a reality. And at the time, Henry VIII uh, didn't want it, didn't want you to be able to read the Bible. And what happened when he, he and others were able to translate the scriptures into people's own languages? As people read it, the nations were transformed. Biblical Christianity exploded across Germany, across Netherlands, across Switzerland, across Britain. Churches grew up, whole movements, the Reformation, the Reformed faith, Presbyterians, Baptists, etc it exploded. Why? Because they had the access to the Bible. Some historians will say it's the printing press. It wasn't the printing press. The printing press was important, but it was only important because they printed this sword, which went into the hands of every man and woman, or many men and women, and changed their lives. So then to conclude, I want to give you three things. If you're not a Christian here, the answer is really simple, that if this is the word of God, the best way to get to know God is to read it. Take Mark's gospel from the back. We've got some take one free take a bible very happy to give you that have a read get face to face with the person of Christ see what he has to say because it is only by meeting him in his word that you will know whether he is the powerful king of the universe or not second of all if you're a christian then take up this sword apply this sword uh, start to challenge yourself with this sword expose yourself to the word to allow it to transform your thinking start to inhabit the story of scripture of course, this is not something you can do today, not something the response. For some of you, it might be a case that you need to surrender again today to say, actually, no, I trust this has got your word, God, and I, I want it to have an authority to speak into my life, to lead me. I want to be led by your word. Welcome his voice in your life. Welcome him to speak to you and to lead you. Recognize his authority and resubmit yourself to his rule and reign. But of course, this is really an opportunity for worship if the band want to come up. We worship a God who is not silent. He's spoken into our world, both through many prophets, through his word, his prophetic scripture, and also ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the living word. We worship a God whose words are so powerful that at his word, the world was created. At his word, look remember at Mark's gospel, Jesus spoke the word and the storm was stilled. The waves stopped His word is powerful because he is the king of the universe. He is to be worshipped. Behind all of this is a power and majesty to behold, to celebrate, that he has the power to protect us, the power to lead us through the battles. If we're going to zoom out for a moment, remember the bigger picture of what we're talking about here, that you are in a battle and that God has got everything you need to protect you and to enable you to keep walking with him for all eternity that we can celebrate what we have received. We're going to worship in a moment. We're going to take communion. We're going to give thanks to what God has done on the cross, that Jesus has has given us that breastplate of righteousness, which is, by the way, if any of you are feeling condemned right now, feeling like, oh, I just need to read my Bible and I'm a rubbish person, to put on that breastplate of righteousness. Remember that you've been made righteous in Christ, that he loves you. You've got to hear his grace as well as his challenge. Here, This is for your sake, because he loves you, not because he's got a tick box somewhere marking how many days you've read the Bible in the last week. But let's give thanks, and then we're going to worship. Lord, we want to thank you that you are so good to us, that you're a father who, who challenges us, that you're a father who, who changes us. We welcome your word to come and shape us, Lord. We don't want to be people who just hear the word. We want to do it as well. Lord, we want your word to have a central place in our lives. We want to be people who hear you, who hear, you, hear your voice and respond to it, Lord who uh, revere you, who recognize your authority. Lord, would you come and speak to us? Would you lead us? Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you haven't left us alone, that we don't live in a silent universe where we're trying to grasp and grapple to who God is. We know who you are, Lord. You revealed yourself to us and we just want to worship you and enjoy you and enjoy all the privileges of sonship that you've given us, Lord. Help us to put on this armor. Help us to remember that we've been made righteous, to remember the importance of truth, to put on these gospel boots, to know that we've been, made, uh, been brought into your family, that we've been adopted. Help us to have the courage and endurance to continue with our helmet of salvation, knowing the end, knowing that you're bringing us to a place of perfection, that we're going to be with you for eternity, Lord. We just want to thank you and worship you this evening. Amen.